electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Morgan Brennan with Scott Wapner and Mike Santoli live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. Carl, Jim, and David have the morning off. We're just going to take a look at futures this Friday morning, this last day, this last trading day of 2022. We're poised to open lower. Uh, so much for that. I guess early whiff of a Santa rally we saw yesterday with the Dow down 151 points right now. Uh, the S&P um, in a position to open down 26 points and the Nasdaq down 114 points. Our roadmap is going to start, though, with that last trading day of 2022. Major averages heading towards their worst performance in more than a decade. Plus, a generational opportunity in fixed income, why some fund managers are expecting a big bounce back for bonds. And Southwest hoping for stability. The airline saying it expects operations to return to normal today. All right, we're going to begin with the markets, though, on this last trading day of 2022. Stocks are on pace for their worst year since 2008. The Nasdaq, the biggest underperformer, down more than 30 percent on the year. We also have some new data today from CNBC's Delivering Alpha Investor Survey. When asked about the S&P's performance for next year, 40% of respondents say they believe it will rise 6 to 10%, which we know, and Bob Asani's been talking about all week, Mike Santoli, yeah. uh, the fact that when you have a big down year, such as the one we had now, historically, you tend to be followed by a bounce. That being said, not always the case, yeah. right? I mean, bespoke uh, actually... Uh, look flag volatility for this morning and what that means going into next year. And uh, I've seen some other notes this morning sort of suggesting that we've seen similar second years of down moves uh, earlier in the millennium as well. If you look at 2003, 2008, 2009. There are just not enough down 20 percent years in history to actually have a rule based on it. Right. So it's the sample size is small. And as, as Scott and I were talking about last night, we had this very unusual situation this year where the high for the bull market was on the first trading day of the year. So the year's statistics are also the peak to trough statistics, basically. Uh, there have been multiple times when we've been down 20 percent over a 12-month period. It just didn't happen to coincide with the exact calendar year. All that being said, one-third of people uh, in that survey saying returns next year will be less than 6% for the S&P 500. That strikes me as a high percentage of people expecting sub-par returns or, or below normal, below average returns. Uh, and I think that makes sense in the sense of all the forces that got us where we are here today mostly remain in place. I would make a few observations, though. One is most of the downside we've experienced was done by May, right? Point to point. The, the intraday low in May is basically where we're trading right now. So we've been existing with these things for a long period of time. Valuations have compressed. Our bonds going to crash again next year, right? We started the year with the, the 10-year under 2%, and there was no cushion in bonds. They're down uh, almost as much as stocks are this year, and the 60-40 portfolio has basically rarely been down as much as it is this year. All I'm saying is it's a less risky starting point 
today than we were a year ago. There's not $2 trillion left in crypto to go away. We're down $2 trillion in crypto mm -hmm. from the peak. This was a year really, to, I mean, to your point, if you want to jump off on the crypto thing, where, where the froth really got wiped out, whether it's crypto or SPACs or mm -hmm. ARK or, you know, if you say the high valuation names like Tesla or even NVIDIA, names like that where really, really crashed down to earth. I wonder, and by the way, 6 to 10%, if, if people think that we're going to have a 6 to 10% year, that would feel like a win, a major win mm -hmm. in the face of, of some pretty big headwinds. It would feel like a win, but it would basically not even get us back to the August high. No, but I mean, anything better no, no, which than is what we had this maybe year. Maybe a low bar, yeah. With, yeah. I do think it's a low bar. Will it be as volatile a year? One third of the year had S&P moves of more than 1%. 122 trading days had moves of more than 1%. Yeah. I mean, it's the most volatile that stocks have been since 1945. Gives you an idea of the kind of year it's been. Volatile in that sense, um, in the sense of big daily moves, it was very gappy. Uh, you had a lot of people playing defense for much of the year. What we didn't see, though, is that kind of real overshoot, that sort of pure liquidation type of move that you sometimes get, you know, near the end of a bear market. I know a lot of people have made that observation. I don't think you need it all the time. You can have a controlled demolition of, of valuations. And I think that's kind of what we more or less got in response to all the, uh, the higher cost of capital and, and what the Fed was doing. Big question, obviously, is going to be, was this really the end of something? Was it the end of 40 years of disinflation? Was it the end of 40 years of the ability of the Fed to continue to uh, create an accommodative uh, backdrop for the economy when things get tough. That's, those are bigger uh, questions that I don't think are going to be resolved very soon. It's also worth noting, and this was according to DataTrack earlier this week, that five, you've used this word so many times on our air <laughs> this year, orderly, orderly. Yes. Um, five trading sessions accounted for 95% plus of S&P losses in 2022. You saw two of those days were disappointing inflation data, others were disappointing earnings, and also Fed Chair Powell commentary. Um, to your point, the fact that we, and we've had bounces. It's been a bear market, yeah. but we've had these bounces too. And I think that sort of raises the question, right, going into, and again, why you have this massive spread in terms of price targets for the S&P for 2023 across Wall Street right now. Um, what this looks like going into next year, whether the recent bounce we've seen, again, maybe perhaps marks a bottom or whether we're yeah. going to go back and, and test some of those lows we saw earlier this year and the role that earnings and this idea of an earnings recession is going to play in that. Have we seen as big a divergence in recent years in where targets are, to Morgan's point, for a new year where you've got a Tom Lee uh, at like a 4750 yeah. and then you have all the way down to like a 3300? It's really difficult yeah. in the new year to figure out where we're going because of all the variables we have to deal with. I would say in terms of the high-low, that's a very wide range. What I find also interesting, though, is the majority of people clustered around the market's going to do nothing. It's going to be a swoop lower and then maybe higher, and we might just end where we start. That seems to be where the, the central consensus seems to be gathering up. Um, a but soft I do landing? Well, or, or if it's hard, then the market's going to have discounted yeah. it ahead of time. You know, there's all these overlapping cyclical patterns and tendencies that can't all play out according to, you know, the way history says. Uh, right. I mean, if January 3rd was the peak of this market, then it probably peaked too soon, so to speak, to, to anticipate a recession because we haven't had one yet. Um, if October was the low in the S&P 500, then it probably was too early because normally if we're going to get a recession, it doesn't bottom until you're in it. So 
that all is based on the premise that we get some kind of a recession. I do think it's plausible to say we muddle through or there's kind of a no landing or the nominal economy grows fast enough to support corporate activity while we have some bouts of, of, of the real GDP going lower. Who knows? Um, what I do know is valuations compressed. The Nasdaq 100 went from 30 times earnings to 20. Is 20 low enough? Right. I mean, are we basically hoping that the pendulum just stops halfway through? And so is there unfinished business on that front, even as the average stock uh, is is much cheaper? I mean, does Best Buy have to be below 12 times earnings? Maybe it has traded below that at times or 10 times. Um, But that's the kind of stock where nobody's making much of a fuss about it. They've struggled. They're off the lows. Home builders are like down 30 percent, but also up 30 percent off the lows or or thereabouts, 20 percent off the lows. So it's, it's a very interesting give and take in terms of how unusual this cycle was and we're trying to apply the long-term, you know, rules to it. Mm -hmm. Some big names, you know, as we talked about the ones that corrected a lot, you know, it's it's not just a a Tesla world, although it's obviously grabbing a lot of the headlines. It was a meta, a bad year for meta. Um, Bigger market cap stocks that were sort of in the the lights, the marquee names. Uh, PayPal Mm -hmm. uh, had its worst year, I think, ever. Uh, and, And, you know, questions about stocks like that, what will what will you know the dar- the one-time darlings of the market do in the new year? I mentioned Nvidia earlier, but a PayPal, who's I think market cap at one point this past year was bigger than Bank of America. Yeah, um, I would put Meta aside because that was not a very high initial valuation coming into this year anyway, because that's really just kind of an execution, a little bit of a almost a tr- strategic uh, decision and rebellion by uh, by the street. But um, when it comes to something like the PayPal's. Um, I think it's it's sort of a long convalescence is usually the rule for those things where you have this valuation surge. People realize they're addressing a huge need, realize they're going to be a, a dominant player and it's a huge addressable market and they kind of overpay for it for a while. And, you know, a lot of stocks could be like the Microsoft from 1999 to 2012 type of rule, which is the company did well mm-hmm. along the way, did what it was supposed to do. But it just never could recapture that valuation. And it also speaks to this idea of uh, a market rotation and whether that's going to be lasting or not, right? You saw so many uh, investors move out of these big cap tech names into things like energy, which was such a small sliver of the overall S&P and which has grown, um, I think, what, from 2% weighting to 6% rating? You're still small, Mm -hmm. but that's a a big jump, right? It's the only... It's the only S&P sector in the green for this year, and that's going to be a key question looking to next year as well in some of these more cyclicals, energy, other commodities, industrials, which have also had a, a good run of it, at least recently this quarter, um, whether those continue to maintain leadership, especially when you look at something like uh, a crude chart for this year, because Brent is poised, and I say Brent because that's the world benchmark. It's more tied to the refined products. It's more tied to uh, what we've seen take place with the Russia invasion of Ukraine and the impact that had on energy prices globally. But Brent is poised to end the year up, what, 7%? But look at that chart. It was a it was a crazy year. If you just slept through the whole year and just woke up now and saw a 7% gain, you'd be like, okay, fine, whatever. But it was a crazy year. Yeah. for energy prices. What is next you're going to look like? And that's another area where you have investors running the gamut here, saying everything from disinflation is going to hit commodities and commodity prices in a more meaningful way to you're going to see another big energy spike emanating from Europe again, especially if this Ukraine conflict continues on. Uh, and by the way, that's going to have ripple effects as well to things like currencies, uh, 
potentially have had one investor say to me that you could potentially see a referendum on the euro, for example, if you continue to see these yeah. uh, sustained pain points around energy on that continent. All right, let's turn now to the latest around Southwest Airlines. The uh, airline now saying it expects to operate a normal schedule today. Uh, this meltdown has just been, Mike, extraordinary uh, over the last week. You know, they, they had a call with the media yesterday. Uh, the CEO, Bob Jordan, is now talking about, quote, shifting their priorities to upgrade some of their uh, systems. Were really, uh, it was the weather, yes, but their systems failed them uh, just incredibly. They had to manually assign pilots and flight attendants to flights when their own sort of technology system couldn't couldn't handle it. You had you know volunteers literally being called in to right. help figure figure everything out. You've seen the pictures. I'm sure all of you have seen thousands and thousands of bags of the luggage just strewn all over airports and tarmacs and seemingly everywhere else. Yeah, and it's just. Almost one very extreme example of something you see across industries in the economy, which is there was a priority built over many years for just in time, for lean operations, for efficiency, um, for getting away from the idea of having kind of, you know, inert assets or redundancies built in because you wanted to be uh, maximizing efficiency. And it's not it can't actually accommodate massive disruption like this. Now, they were overexposed to airports where extreme weather just couldn't be dealt with very easily. So, I mean, it's not just purely uh, a Southwest issue in terms of how they ran the place that they got hit hardest. They were exposed to the toughest areas, right, um, in, in that unusual cold snap mm -hmm. and things like that. But, uh, yeah, it's what's fascinating to me, we've talked about this, too, is that this is the sort of thing the market shows itself sometimes willing to look through if it feels like it's a blip. If it feels like it's just, oh, they're kind of getting a bad rap or they're, they, they had this one misstep. But, they, but there will have to be a lot of investment. There will have to probably be compromising on, on margins down the road. Mm -hmm. And I think you're seeing it in, a, across industry. We're going to produce stuff here. We're going to own our own production. Uh, we're not going to look at the lowest cost uh, way of doing business because we can't anymore. Yeah, it it was just, it's to that point. I mean, it's been just a, that has been a huge shift, and that sort of speaks to everything we've seen play out with and the labor scarcity part of it is reshoring, nearshoring. Yes, all of that. Um, to go back to the Southwest piece of the puzzle, I mean, you did have the chief commercial officer come out and say that this will quote certainly impact the company's fourth quarter results. Um, declined to predict a final cost. You had uh, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg speaking to NBC again yesterday, saying the government is putting it under a quote microscope threatened the airline with tens of thousands of dollars per violation per passenger in fines, which kind of got raised my eyebrows a little bit. Um, yeah. so, so, so to your point, like so it's going to be a noisy quarter, and I think everybody can, can sort of uh, get on board with, with that fact. Um, but this is also the airline that had reinstated, the first major airline that reinstated its dividends oh, not yeah. that long ago and, you know, had been seen as uh, a particularly strong player until this week it wasn't. We're going to be talking a lot more about the storm impact as well next hour with the CEO of Generac, I should note, which has had a horrible year, but a very strong week uh, yeah. on the heels of that storm. That's the worst S&P stock, uh, by yes. the way, on the year is Generac. But back to Southwest, you know, if you're a consumer or you're a flyer, passenger, whatever, traveler, uh, and you're making your plans, and to Mike's point, you really don't have much choice. The way that the airline route structure is these days and where hubs are, you're going to fly based on price and you're going to fly based on convenience. And what is mad today 
is not necessarily mad tomorrow because you may not have a choice when you want to fly on your next vacation or business trip or wherever, which would theoretically minimize the impact over the longer term for the, the bottom line for a Southwest Airlines. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break here with futures indicating a lower open after that bounce higher that we saw yesterday. We're lower for the month for the major averages. We're higher for the quarter for the Dow and the S&P, but we're on pace for the worst year for the major averages since 2008. We're just going to take a check on the biggest laggards on the NDX. Speaking of for 2022, that's led lower by Lucid. Look at that. It's almost all EV names. Lucid, Rivian, Tesla down 66%, also Atlassian and Allied Technology. We got more stock on the street after this break. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bonds and portfolios have been nothing but a disappointment for many investors over the last decade. Some fund managers now expecting a big resurgence. Our Christina Parsonevelos has that for us this morning. Christina? Well, Scott, fixed income yields have been so low over the last decade. We know that. Even negative in some cases, like in Japan still now. But it's been a tough go for bond investors to find value. But the bond resurgence is upon us. I have never seen really a better opportunity in the bond market to get into the bond market than I have right now. And that's in my whole career. A new Bank of America fund manager survey for December shows investors are actually overweight bonds relative to any other asset class for the first time since 2009. Why? Well, we know yields have steadily climbed, resulting in higher interest rate payments, and those yields are expected to stay high in 2023 as the Fed has signaled no immediate pivot until inflation falls in the labor market weakens. Even if inflation comes down a little, it's not expected to be majorly dramatic and result in a pivot right away. So given that Fed uncertainty, expert at Deutsche Bank, Bank of America, U.S. bank wealth management all suggest sticking to shorter term fixed income assets. Our perspective is just, you know, be fairly tight to benchmark shorter in duration as we get into the first quarter of the year. We'll see, you know, this interplay between the Fed inflation and, and the economy and, and, and see what that sequencing looks like. So for investors watching, that means you can look at Vanguard's ultra short bond ETF or the iShares short treasury bond ETF. Those are two that you're seeing on your screen right now, uh, both with high dividend yields of almost 1.4 percent. And then uh, you have city analysts that say that many are still even missing out in the explosion of corporate bond ETF options, IG, LQD, track investment grade corporate bond markets. You can see they're on your screen as well, too, with their yields and offer yields both above 3 percent. You can see the principal investment grade corp, that dividend yield is over over 7%. And I know I'm talking about bonds and ETFs that 
you know, track the market. They may be sleepier than crypto or new tech uh, offerings out there, but they do offer stability as we head into a very uncertain 2023, guys. Yeah, Christina, and stability, I think, might be the way to, to, to think about it. I, I do find it interesting that um, there's almost this novelty factor. People who for, a, a, you know, almost a generation aren't used to the, the availability of safe yield are saying, wow, look at this. I can have this as a cushion in my portfolio. But, but also probably worth keeping in mind that if you are afraid of a recession, yield, bonds could probably finally act as a hedge uh, against other risks that you might be be holding as opposed to just, you know, saying, oh, I'm getting 3% as a way of getting some income. Yeah, excellent point, because we really saw that uh, that relationship between equities and bonds fall apart, especially in 2022 with the sell-off. And so a lot of these experts, of course, they're going to be bullish bonds because that's what they cover. Uh, they have say, they're saying that finally that relationship that we know of when uh, the markets tank, you're going to see bonds go or people get back into bonds because it's a safer bet. So that is the reason why they're saying this relationship is going to come back. You have several fund managers Bank of America, all of them are saying for the first half of the year, bonds is where to go. And then the second half of the year is to when you should be pivoting back into equities. All right, Christina Parts and Avalos, thank you. Taking a look at futures as we've got eight minutes until the last opening bell of 2022. We're indicated to open lower. we got more Squawk on the Street when we return. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the biggest gainers on the Dow for the year, not surprisingly, from two of the better performing sectors of the year, led by Chevron. Energy far and away the best performer. Merck from healthcare, there you go, up 44%, near 45 on the year. Opening bell, just minutes away. Two minutes until the opening bell. We're keeping our eye on, we've been talking about it all week, but Tesla, it's actually lower pre-market right now, down about 1% in what's been another volatile week, a volatile month, a volatile year uh, for this name. Um, finished up 9% yesterday. We did see that bounce, and you do have some analysts coming out this morning uh, and suggesting that maybe it's oversold here, but it's coming. You it's think? Still have its <laughs> down, down 60 some odd percent. Yeah, I was going to say worst, it's coming worst, off its yeah. worst, worst year month, ever. quarter, year yeah. ever. Yeah, in fact, if, I mean, on a technical basis, coming into yesterday, it was just mega oversold, which only just means that the momentum to the downside has been very extreme in a very short period of time. It's, it's essentially been what's gone on with high growth, uh, sort of high concept, you know, tech stocks and digital uh, stocks all year, uh, only more so. Uh, Tesla is always and more so in terms of the upside and the downside. Yesterday, we did see strong bounces in everything that's been weak coming into, uh, you know, coming into the day. So the laggards for the year bounced hard yesterday, short covering, you know, some relief from the tax loss selling, and just the idea of portfolio manicuring going into year end, maybe running its course. Um, so hard to know if you want to make much of, uh, of yesterday's bounce, but there's so much room between where it was a couple of days ago and, you know, the high 100s even would, be, would still represent really just retracing back to uh, where the downtrend looks like I, it is. I feel like when you're saying that, I'm thinking of an Apple too, right? The laggards getting a bounce yesterday, people trying to figure out maybe the bottom is close. We'll discuss that in more in a few minutes. Well, and all the other mega cap or once formerly mega 
tech names as well. We've got the opening bells counting down here. Let's see. Take a look at the real-time exchange here at the big board. We've got Planet Fitness celebrating kicking off the new year right. And uh, at the NASDAQ, it's Times Square Alliance getting ready for, well, tomorrow night as Times Square gets ready for another ball dropping. Um, but as you can see right there on the board, Scott, it's a lot of red on this last trading day. Uh, and to Mike's point earlier, I mean, you do have a lot of tax law selling still going on. It's lower vol volume. It tends to be more volatile in weeks like this. Uh, and certainly a lot of uncertainty going into 2023. The, I'm curious your, your take on, on Apple, just back yeah. to it uh, as we discuss this, because, it, you know, the worst year since 08, it's such an important stock. Uh, does it maintain the level of importance that it has had into, into the new year? Uh, especially in, in what is an uncertain year and environment? I, I mean, it certainly maintains its importance. I don't think anything has happened to downgrade. Obviously, there's mathematically what it means for the indexes. The fact that it is not just a widely held stock among individuals, but one that people are very attached to, mm -hmm. right? It's made people a ton of money over the years. Uh, it's, it's one that people feel more comfortable buying and holding. Um, and it's a good corporate citizen, it reflects kind of the current best practices of shareholder return, we're going to get our net cash balance down, but yet still we have tens of billions of net cash, that kind of thing. So all that, yes, I think it's all maintains its importance. It's not going to define where the market goes because it just doesn't really move and respond to the same macro forces that seems to be swinging things, the monetary policy side of it and all the rest. I also keep pointing out, what it's done recently in terms of really breaking down a bit is, is just, again, coming into line with where most of, of mega cap growth has been for months. We haven't really talked about it, but the other name that has relative to some of the other mega cap tech stocks held in, and I say that with a 30% decline this year, is Microsoft. Yeah. Microsoft has had a, had a relatively strong year versus the names like Netflix and Amazon and Tesla, et cetera, that we talk about so often. It's definitely sort of the low drama. They make their numbers. Uh, there's not going to be a lot of boom bust elements of their business. I think one of the challenges for the market is um, Microsoft, if, if, if we're going to be paying up for steady growth, then Microsoft at 23 times forward earnings, you know, is fine. There's no reason it can't trade to 19. It's traded way below that in the past. The overall S&P is under seven. My point is, you still have the argument as to what to pay for stability. Uh, again, in, a, in, a, in an economy where you do have other sources of growth, it's not a beneficiary of inflation if we're going to keep getting inflation. All these things, I think, are, are part of the reflection of the fact that it is still the very largest stocks in this market that have retained their kind of valuation premium. Yeah, their premium. And, and they have not yet really given way to the point that the typical one has. Maybe that's then the, the, the question that needs to be answered first and foremost for this group is whether they deserve to continue to have yeah. any premium. Well, now, they're yeah. always going to get a premium. 
So maybe that's that, that's not the right way to say no, it. No, no, they may not always. But Meta doesn't is there, have one. Well, but is there at right. some but point, for some self-inflicted reasons, the sure. reason why it doesn't. Yeah, and, and is, there at, is there some point, Apple is a good example of this, we've had this debate for years now, is there, at some point, do they become value propositions within tech more broadly? Are they seen as more defensive names yeah. within tech more broadly? Well, they were, like Alphabet, for example, People used to come on the network and say, this stock is cheap, yeah. that it's a value stock. Apple yeah. used to be viewed in no, some no, respects as a, as a value name well, Apple within was, this universe. Sure. Yeah, Apple was for sure. Alphabet is now trading cheaper than it ever has based on current numbers. And so to say that it's too expensive now, I think you have to say that the business has either gotten mature that it can't grow much or that maybe there, there are challenges from around the edges of other uh, parts of search and, and maybe some of their uh, unproductive investments are, are going to be a bit of an albatross. All right, just want to note that all the major averages are trading lower in these uh, few minutes post-opening bell. Uh, just about every sector in the S&P is in the red. Energy just turning positive fractionally. Um, but worth noting that other than energy, which is the only sector that's in the green for the year, the other relative outperformers to the broader S&P this year are the defensive names, uh, are utilities, consumer staples, and healthcare raises question. I feel like we've had a lot of people on our air in recent weeks who say those are still the areas you want to focus on going into 2023. I think that's a, a good point. They, they've run a lot. Yeah. By historical standards, they're probably either if they're not expensive now, they're right on the on the doorstep of of being viewed that way. Yeah. But yet people still come on and suggest that, uh, uh, you know, that the healthcare is the place you want to be. Sure. Stay defensive with some staples, although, you know, I have people come on and say, well, Coca-Cola, is that too expensive now? Is, is, are there other yeah. opportunities you now hear that, that are, You hear that, that every time. You know, you really do. And, you know, it's one of those things where, yes, you have to actually pay for the ability to not worry as much about, uh, you know, about the safety of the dividend, about whether the business is going to actually be able to power through. Uh, I think you could look at healthcare, though. I mean, far, big pharma is not expensive. Um, you could find parts of healthcare that seem like they're a little bit overloved. I mean, UNH, one of the reasons that the Dow has done so well this year relative mm -hmm. to the other indexes is United Healthcare is the highest price stock in a price-weighted index. Let's start with that. Um, and has done really well. I mean, it's massive outperformance this year. It's just considered to be, you know, a bit of this, you know, predictable toll taker on the U.S. economy. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, that a health insurer uh, is, is, you know, has that status. But Merck, looking right now. Look at Merck. Is, we, we just did it in uh, before the, the prior break. Right. It's one of the, the second best outperformer on the year. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, obviously, we touched on it earlier, but I'm uh, going to circle back on cryptocurrencies, which have just been bludgeoned this year. Bitcoin down, what, something like 75% since its high back uh, the end of last year, November. Um, MicroStrategy just turning positive, but keeping an eye on that one. It just hit a fresh 52-week low just a few moments ago um, as it's had another week of selling. It's uh, it, it put a filing out on Wednesday, uh, basically said still a net buyer of Bitcoin, but for the first time ever actually sold some of its holdings. Uh, they say they're doing it for tax purposes. Quote, MicroStrategy plans to carry back the capital losses resulting from this transaction against previous capital gains um, that it might generate a tax benefit. We know that uh, tax 
taxes, quarterly earnings, how, how all of this is reported around cryptocurrencies is very wonky. And certainly well, folks in the industry have called for changes, that there are some changes coming. Um, but when you have what's been considered not only a Bitcoin bull in Michael Saylor, the co-founder and chairman of the company, but also um, considered to be a crypto whale, a Bitcoin whale in general, Pied selling Piper anything, yeah. that headline alone certainly uh, pushing the stock lower. I get that the headline could have could, could hit a raw nerve, but to me it makes all the sense in the world that this is a company where the average cost that they've paid for Bitcoin is above $30,000. Therefore, some of the purchases are well above there. It's just basic tax management to say, I'm going to sell some of the higher cost basis lots and take a loss. I don't know all the intricacies of how you could book that. But the point is, it just makes sense to sell at a loss, offset some, some capital gains, use that going forward as a potential buffer to further taxes and not really change the overall exposure. Because uh, they've they bet the company on Bitcoin and uh -huh. they continue to, to maintain that bet. Um, so if you're worried about Bitcoin microstrategy as a, as a corollary to it, fine. The fact that they trimmed back and then bought at lower prices, to me, is not the reason to be incrementally concerned. Yeah, it, go, it, it goes back to the fact that we have seen some of these big fintechs uh, hit so hard this year as well, too. I mean, PayPal, the company formerly known as Square, Block, um, these are names that, in addition to their actual bread and butter financial services offerings, uh, have levered themselves in some form or fashion um, in terms of product offerings and in terms of how the market sees them to cryptocurrencies, to things like Bitcoin. You've also got names like Coinbase under a little bit of pressure today, too. But in general, at least in recent weeks, recent months, Bitcoin has been trading, dare I say, in a pretty narrow range, sort of between the 16,000, 17,000 yeah, mark. Very narrow I mean, range. It's, it's been anchored around 16. That's, that is very, use the word, relative, stable for that cryptocurrency, for that asset class, given what we've seen over the years. There has been this um, sort of perverse impact of the FTX meltdown and the revelation that they were inventing their own token out of thin air and using it to collateralize borrowing and this what are we even doing here kind of story to, to some of the crypto instruments. Whereas Bitcoin is, look, the code has been written forever. We know how it works. We know how many there are. We know how many there are going to be. You could love it or hate it. You could think it's useless or useful. But we know what it is. We, we paid a certain price for it. So enough people think it's a, some form of digital gold or the raw material of the next generation of the Internet that it's going to hold some kind of value, even if it's, it's you know, obviously lost a lot of momentum. I feel like it's worth discussing, too, since, you know, we're talking about some, you know, well-known people who are making some you know, interesting investment decisions, the performance of hedge funds this past year, the worst returns in some 14 years. Now, the performance is gonna beat the S&P 500, which I suppose is the point. Yeah. You're supposed to weather the storm, uh, but it's been a difficult year for, for most. I'm not gonna say everybody because there are the multi-strats who have done really, really well. Some yes. of them, especially like the Citadels of the world, who I think as of November you know, was up 30 plus percent based on their multi-strategy, uh, you know, commodities and currencies and fixed income and, and all of the and, other and, things. And frankly, a lot of just, you know, one algo day trading pods that they, that they also uh, finance. But you're absolutely right. Look, when stocks and bonds are both down huge in a given year, it's, it's not going to be easy for a hedge fund. With, you know, you're always going to be net long in aggregate uh, to really perform. But you're right on the macro hedge funds, too. Macro, currencies, 
bonds, all that stuff trending. When that stuff is trending, they can play it. Yeah. By the way, I feel like we should keep an eye on the dollar, right? I mean, sure. it had best year since 2015, but we've seen that come off pretty aggressively just this month. What does that look like going into next year? We have a story that's just moving now. The uh, House Ways and Means Committee has just released the tax returns of former President Donald Trump. The returns are from the years 2015 through 2020. Included are the personal returns of Donald and Melania Trump, as well as some returns from Trump's businesses. Much of the information had previously been released, but returns from 2019 and 2020 had not previously been seen. NBC News is currently going through the thousands of pages that are now out. We'll let you know of any pertinent details that do emerge. The former president has responded, saying the release of his returns was an outrageous abuse of power and had no legitimate legislative purpose. Before we head to break, it is time for the bond report. Let's take a look at how treasuries are faring on this Friday morning. Um, largely, last I checked, a bit higher across the board. Yep, there you go. The 10-year is 3.879%. We're really higher uh, across the board versus a week ago. And just to put this in perspective, the 10-year started 2022 at 1.5%. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Rick Santelli here live at CME HQ with the last breaking news of 2022 in the form of, well, Chicago PMI. It's a December read expected to be around 40. Our last look at 37.2 was the weakest since May of 2020. We jumped to 44.9, 44.9. That puts us back on par with uh, October's read, which was 45.2. So it isn't necessarily a stellar read, but it's much better than the lowest level since May of 2020 at 37.9. We see interest rates continue to creep up. As a matter of fact, yesterday's low in 10-year treasuries happened to be the starting point for that CPI about three weeks ago. Squawk on the Street will return after a short break. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Let's get to Bob Pisani for a look at the markets. Bob. And we are sort of ending the year the way the year has gone. It's the triumph of value over growth. So take a look this morning on the sectors here. Semis down, communication services weaker. Uh, consumer discretionary weaker and energy there's value down but relatively outperforming energy has been the big winner for the year of course so that's sort of the way the year has gone major indices in 2022 were right on the cusp of a down 20 percent year in the s&p 500 folks that's a very rare occurrence but the industrials doing better russell 2000 almost the same amount nasdaq's been the big loser so want to look at this 20 percent decline level for the s&p that level we need to close at 38.12 or below that you see that we're right there there at 38.12. We go below that and we're in down 20% territory. So the bad news is this would be the fourth worst year for the stock market since 1945. That's right. Uh, 2008 was worse. 74 was worse. 2002 was worse. And there's 22 looking like it's going to be down 20 percent. Uh, so the important thing here is uh, good stocks do tend to rise in the following year uh, on this so that we only get about one quarter of the years do we have down years here. The average gain in the following year is up 14 percent and it's up 80 percent of the time. So the bad news, we've got one of the worst years uh, since World War II. The good news is down years tend to be followed by 
up years. And in the next hour, we'll talk a little bit about sectors that may outperform on that. But in the meantime, he's here. Art Cashin is going to be here, 1.30 Eastern time, along with the Buttonwood Club, the old retired NYC members to sing. Wait till the sunshine, Nelly and Morgan. Art hasn't been here all year, so it's going to be quite a celebration to see Art back on the floor. We'll talk with him a little bit about his outlook for 2023. So excited to see Art. He is a national treasure and equally as excited to see what tie he decides to wear today in honor <laughs> of this occasion. Bob Fazzani, thank you. Here with more on the markets as we kick off the final trading day of the year. John Stoltzfus, Oppenheimer's chief investment strategist. John, thanks for being on with us today. What a year it's been. And we've been talking about it, the fact that Wall Street uh, really so many on Wall Street got it so wrong this year. Um, but you started the year, I guess back in December of last year, with a price target year-end on the S&P of 53.30. That's a 1,500-point differential from where we are right now. I, I want to get your thoughts on how, how that estimate got it so wrong versus where we're poised to close today. Very simply, Morgan, and thanks for having me on the show, is in December of uh, 2021 when we put that target in, uh, the S&P uh, 500 was ticking higher. The Fed had fairly well announced that it would be accelerating its uh, tapering program uh, in the first quarter with likelihood of uh, raising rates. But what couldn't be seen was the uh, aggression of, uh, or rather, well, the aggression of Russia into Ukraine, uh, which disrupted oil prices, which is central. Oil prices are core to inflation. Uh, and then in addition to that, of course, zero tolerance to COVID uh, by President Xi in China, which further delayed uh, the supply chain uh, uh, recovery. And with that, it was a great boost to inflation, making the job of the Fed harder. And it, as a result, they were more aggressive. Uh, that said, uh, you know, we did bring down our target. I think mid-year mm -hmm. we came down to 4,800. Then we went down to 4,400. Uh, uh, we went to 4,400 for next year and 4,000 for this year. So, you know, it, it, the Bears have had it this year. They were wrong for almost 13 years, notwithstanding some pullbacks uh, that were, I think the worst was uh, in 20, uh, uh, 2018 when the S&P was down, uh, I think it was 19.8 or something, just brushed against a bear. But what we've got to say now is, you know, this reminds us that the setup uh, for 2009 uh, where the Federal Reserve had, had uh, taken actions. No one believed that the Fed would be able to get the economy to recover. First quarter of 2009, the market was down 27%. Hopefully that won't okay. be the case this year, okay? But then the S&P rose from March 9th to the end of the year, something like 63%, and I think tech was up something so like 80%. So you think next year is going to be... So you think next year is going to be an up year, is what you're telling me? Yeah, I, th I think, yeah. And I think it's going to be, a, 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 you know, a modestly higher, a little bit richer higher. I was thinking 10 percent, you know, to 4,400. But at that time, the market was rallying on that October rally somewhere in there. Uh, but I would, would think, you know, 10, 12 percent upside from here would uh, be highly likely as the Fed can, if, should the Fed be able to prove that indeed it can uh pause uh, inflation. We don't think the Fed will pause, uh, at least in the first half of this year. Uh, we don't expect the Fed to start cutting rates in the first half of the year. But we think the increases will be more modest. The data that has been released just this week is mixed, some hotter than expected, some weaker than expected. 
uh, you know, that Chicago number, as I recall, was a little bit hotter than expected. Uh, but the housing numbers, it, that's that's really come down. If you look at the case shiller on a month over month, it was it was it was down in the teens, as I recall. So I think what's happening is we, we've got the big issues. And I think it was mentioned earlier on the show. It, it's about the consumer and it's about jobs, how we move forward. But the risks still remain. Uh, China's got uh, is, has stopped the zero COVID policy. And in the process of that, you know, there's a risk of uh, a pickup there. What's that going to do to the rest of the world? And you've also got the idea that uh, related to jobs, is this going to affect jobs hard? Thus far, no. I still recall there's about 1.79 jobs for every person that's unemployed if they wanted the jobs. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, John, it really so much of it boils down to how fast does inflation come down? Because that'll just determine whether the Fed can can truly step back, whether they really feel like they don't have to do more damage to the to the labor market uh, and, and maybe can support uh, equity valuations better. So what do you think actually is going to be the path of inflation? Yeah, I, I think the I think we're going to see the path of inflation show what it's begun to show already uh, in the fourth quarter is that indeed the Fed does have effect. Uh, hopefully, politicians in Washington will be able to uh, keep their hands off the till, so to speak, and we won't have a lot of uh, fiscal stimulus coming to to offset the, the positive efforts of the Fed. And, you know, one thing this year that's never been mentioned is really it's, it, that politicians, both from right the start of the pandemic in, in, in 2020, when they started taking action, as well as the, the Biden administration, they just they overdid it in, in adding stimulus when the Fed was doing the job. And the Fed has yeah. taken the blame for most of this. And, uh, and I don't know, we, we've been big believers in, in the Ben Bernanke legacy Fed, which we still think is alive and well with Jerome Powell. Okay. We'll have to see how 2023 shakes out. John Stoltzfus, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Scott Wapner, thanks for joining us this week here on Squawk on the Street. We'll see you you more later today. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year to you guys. You too. I'll I'll see you later. Your your last word, your real last word of the year. I'm working (laughs) on it. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.